Father, we pray that you'll open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Hey, good morning. It's what a wonderful church you have. I was, when I managed to find, I didn't, I missed the car park. <laughs> so uh, I got somewhere up the, up the road there and came in eventually following all the directions from one door to the other. Um, and here, what a surprise. Well done. This wonderful, wonderful uh, adaptation of the church. Really welcoming. That's great. Um, lovely to be with you. And, um, you know, bishops get various welcomes, but thank you very much indeed. Um, my first, as soon after I became a bishop, we were going into the United States of America as a family. I forgot what I was going to do over there, something. Uh, I wasn't dressed as a bishop, but um, we were one of the first planes in, and the lady who was doing the immigration on that day, uh, where we were, um, she filled the booth. She was one of those very happy ladies. Um, and she took my passport and she said, are you a bishop? And you wait for it, you know. You wait for what's going to come next. Then she said, I said, yes. Hallelujah, she said. Praise the Lord. <laughs> it's never happened at Heathrow. Words are sometimes very confusing. We put a word, if you say church, you'll think of this. Uh, if you'll think of school, you'll think of one of your local schools. If you'll think of youth club or anything. If you think of holidays, I don't know what you might think of. But we put things into a category, and very often once we've got it into the category, we won't move it out of that category. And if I say the word worship, for most people it means being in church. And it's a long way from what its meaning is. And so part of my task this morning is to try and share with you the three great meanings of worship um, that um, make up the whole pattern of what God wants us to do when we come to meet him. Um, because words can be, as I say, very, very confusing otherwise. Now, as you saw in the psalm, and we'll have it up please on the screen, um, as you remember in the psalm, this is a, a psalm about worship. Uh, and uh, I don't, do you have morning prayer ever here? Hmm? Tuesdays. Tuesdays. Well, it used to be when I was a choir boy, of course, and younger, every Sunday morning. Most of you are old enough to remember all that. Um, and uh, the night every week. Uh, as a choir boy, you just got used to doing it. It was only later in life I realized what a master stroke that was for, for those who compiled the morning prayer in the prayer book. Because every Sunday it said, you are here to worship. Every Sunday, it reminded us what worship was about. Every Sunday, it challenged us. I would have it every Sunday in any service if I could, uh, because it is a marvelous, uh, uh, a marvelous challenge to, to what worship is about. So come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. You can see it all up there. Let us shout for the rock of our salvation. We're to come with thanksgiving, with music and song, etc., um, yes, of course, we take that for granted, and we tend to think that can be worship. Um, but the psalm goes on, later on, it goes on to say, Come, let us bow down in worship. Come, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Uh, you can't kneel here, but it's not a matter of physical kneeling. It's a matter of taking God seriously. Let me ask you, when you came through the door of the church this morning, was it to meet with God or just to come to a service? When you got up this morning, did you look forward to this time when you would meet with God and God would meet with you and pray that this would be true of this service? 
Do we take God seriously enough, even coming to church, let alone in our lives? That's the challenge of this psalm. Uh, It is meaning a God whom we reverence, for whom we have awe and obedience. I find sometimes in, uh, in some of the services I have to go to, fortunately not here this morning, so I'm not being critical, that you end up with choruses that are so inane, I want to walk out and say, where's your reverence for God as God? That wretched chorus about God being higher than a skyscraper. Uh, do you ever sing that here? hope you'll never sing it again. <laughs> or deeper than a submarine. What does that mean to a child? Well, what this psalm does is stand back and look at creation. That's your God. Not higher than a skyscraper, the man, the God who made this universe in all its complexity and wonder and incredible, uh, incredible uh, glory. This is your God. And the psalmist says, come on, stand back, think about it, see what creation's all about. This is God. And it's a, a number of years ago when I was rector of All Souls Langham Place, we used to broadcast on the BBC quite often on the overseas service. One day I had a letter from, we often had letters, this was from a girl working for the American Peace Corps in Liberia. Um, She said, I I don't, I gave up Christianity. She said, I I don't know why I'm writing to you. She said, "I, I equate Christianity with the image I've always had of marriage, a living death, a relationship which smothers, suffocates, stifles, and annihilates. Answer that letter. <laughs> I give you six weeks to think about it, which I did. And eventually I wrote to her and sent her a number of booklets. I didn't hear from her for a while, about two or three months. When I had the letter back, she had come to Christ. She was overwhelmed with, with what it meant. But one of the, I've got her letters still, I've kept them. But this is the phrase I want you to hear. Every day I continue to be overwhelmed with the magnificence of God. Are we? Overwhelmed with the magnificence of God. This was the experience of her newfound faith. And she's gone on serving Christ. She serves Christ in America now um, in charity work with those in need and so on. So this is the amazing way in which worship is something which goes beyond any other experience. You remember the story perhaps in the Old Testament when David was praying for his child not to die. Now there were circumstances about that uh, indeed, but he, he, he prays and prays and prays. He fasts, he wears sackcloth. Eventually the child dies. They hardly dare tell him, but they do go and tell him. And then the Bible tells us what happened. He got up off his knees, he went to his house, he washed, he changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Before he ate anything or did anything else, he worshipped. How many of us in the midst of a bereavement would first worship God? And that was Old Testament. It's a sense in which God is God and I mean business with him in my life. I want to reverence him. I want to serve him. And we know how much that means to so many people. I love the boy's prayer. By the way, God, do look after yourself for if anything happens to you, we're done for. (laughs) And in a simple way, that's saying it. You are our God. Without you, where would we be? 
Um, and sometimes I go to churches, I have been to churches in my diocese, where, I want, where I've actually said, actually, in one or two churches, do you actually believe in God? Because I just, they just didn't, I don't think. They just came for their service. And when problems came, they never got down on their knees. They never said to God, what do you want? They never sought his wisdom or guidance. They were a church that didn't engage with God, only with little activities and social activities. Do you believe in God? If you do, you act as people who believe in God. And it calls out a deep reverence in our lives. But in much more I could say about this, but I know we're limited on time. But this reverence for God is something which I long to see more of. And we've lost a lot of it within our churches. Then reverence is all very well, of course, but if it's only reverence, then you're a bit, uh, a bit limited. And we know that there are many people in other religions who reverence God, but it doesn't go much further than that. At least they say they reverence God and they act in reverent actions towards God. You may, many of you remember, uh, the person called Bilquis Sheik. That name mean anything to you? No. She was a very high, um, high um, Muslim um, woman, a person of, of great um, importance and wealth and so on. She became a Christian. I've forgotten how she became a Christian, but she became a Christian. And her family all denounced her and uh, completely wrote her off, all her family. She wrote a book in the end, and the title was, I Dared to Call Him Father. I Dared to Call Him Father. For her, it was the most wonderful thing to have a personal relationship with God, which you don't have in the Muslim faith. God is God, you reverence him. But not a personal relationship as we understand it. To her it was so overwhelming, so wonderful. And it's this that the psalmist goes on to really uh, because this is all part of the, the reverence that comes here. So I want to say that uh, he goes on for instance to say for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the flock under his care. So this is very much a, a personal relationship attitude that the psalmist has. And um, if the one is bowing the knee to God, that is, he's metaphorically bowing the knee to God, the second, which is so important, is opening the heart to God. And this was the battle in the Old Testament, wasn't it? They reverenced God, they went to their services, they did their various actions, but God has to say to them in Isaiah, I hate your services, I hate your services. If God said that of a church in our land, I think he probably does in some. I hate your services. Why? Because you may draw near to me with your mouth and honour me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So worship is not, you can sing 40,000 hymns and never worship if your heart is not in tune with God. It's only outward, but real worship has to be inward. So uh, in the rest of the psalm, he goes on to say, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And the reason for this is that we are to hear his word, we are to meditate on his word, we are to be people growing all the time, longing to know him more, longing to love him more, longing to experience his love more, day by day by day. I'm amazed how many Christians and older Christians which is quite a lot here, 
who have ceased to read the scriptures and pray and, and seek to know God every day or most days of the week. I'm amazed, absolutely amazed. I went to another church a little while ago and um, I spent, it was an away day and I spent the whole, most of the whole day on prayer and they all felt it was wonderful and all the rest of it. And then I discovered that someone was saying, I went to one of their fellowship groups the other day and they didn't even pray. And what was the use of my spouting myself for a whole morning <laughs> if you're not going to take God seriously and in prayer and longing and, and seeking to know him more? So this personal relationship is something which agonizes my heart and has been one of the great burdens of my heart in ministry across the years and all sorts of different parishes earlier, um, Coronation Streets parishes and rather upper crusty type of parishes in London and so on. So for me, the crisis of this, if I may share it, was when I was younger. Um, I didn't go to Sunday school. I went um, eventually to a Bible class um, when I was older and um, came to faith in Christ and very seriously so. I meant business with Christ as my saviour. I believed in him as my saviour. I accepted the word of God uh, in that. When I, went in, when I was conscripted into the army at 18, I used to kneel beside my bed and have boots thrown at me. So I did believe. And um, after I came out of uh, the army, my vicar said to me, would you help lead the Bible class? And I thought, no, I don't want to lead the Bible class. Um, I'd rather go cycling on a Sunday and come back for the evening service, which I'd done before. But he pushed me. So I helped in the Bible class. And after three months, I realized that my shallow knowledge of Christianity, because most people's knowledge is very shallow of Christianity, and mine was, was exploded, really. I had little more to give. It was for me a personal crisis. There was no conning. There was no, nobody I talked to about it. But I came home from work. I was working in the bank in London at the time. And after I'd had my meal um, on the crisis week and a couple of nights to start with, I went up to my room. I shut the door. I threw myself on my knees and I cried to God. I cried to God because all my life I believed in integrity. And I felt if I don't really know you, then how do I know you exist? And if I can't know you in that way, I'm going to give up on Christianity. For me, it was a crisis. What happened? No big bang or anything. No sudden this, that or the other. But that night, because I did read the Bible every night, that night, on the second night, I opened the Bible, my normal reading, and it leapt out at me. Suddenly the word was alive. No one conned me into that. This was the Spirit of God who'd set me afire. And suddenly the word was alive. And when I turned to prayer, instead of the extended version of God bless mummy and daddy and the pet cat, it was now talking to God, speaking with him, sharing with him, as it has been for the rest of my life. I had no theory, no theology to explain all that. All I knew is I had come into a personal relationship with God so I said to him, I'll do anything for you, but not the ministry or the mission field. <laughs> Took him a long time to sort that one out, but that's another story. So it's this personal relationship. You're, many of you know Fiona Castle, the widow of Roy Castle. 
And you'll know, remember Roy Castle, many of you, the, the trumpeter, and you'll know the story of Fiona, no doubt. But I mean, she was someone who worked so hard in the church. She was doing this, that, and the other, so busy all the time, and doing charity work and all the rest of it, but getting more and more and more and more tied up with it. And their, their marriage was on the rocks just about. And one morning she prayed to God to, for help, and then the phone rang. And someone said, if you ever want to come around and talk, you know, I'm here. And so she said, oh, thank you very much, put the phone down, because that's what you do with that sort of call. <laughs> and then later on she thought, hey, just a minute, I asked God this morning if I could have help. <laughs> and now this person's offered help. So she went round. Within the hour, she came to Christ in a personal relationship. She came back dancing on air, and Roy said, from that afternoon, it was just as if the house had been redecorated. See, coming into a personal relationship can be today, if you're not, by kneeling before God, by seeking to know him. Seek him with all your heart, and you will come to know him, and he will come to know you. It is a personal relationship. As you know, Revelation 3.20 is he knocks on the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and sup with him. But you have to open the door. God will not force a personal relationship on anybody, but he's open to everybody who loves him to turn to him in that way. So if you don't know him in that way, I plead with you with all my heart to seek him with all your heart, to come to know him, and your, your whole life will light up in a new way. If you need help, there are people here to help. Now I'm getting carried away because I feel with it so deeply. I'm so sad when people's religion, and we've got someone in our block of flats who's an absolute curse to the whole place, charges off to church this morning as usual. <laughs> Martin Luther's theology was described the other day in a book called The Protestants. In this way, Luther, Martin Luther was theology was not a doctrine but a love affair and listen to this wonderful phrase it was an intense desolating intoxicating passion sparked by his life upending glimpse of God's incomprehensible terrible beautiful love for him that's terrific I'm going to say it again it was an intense, desolating, intoxicating passion sparked by his life-upending glimpse of God's incomprehensible, terrible, beautiful love for him. So it's bowing the knee. It's, um, bowing the knee. It is... Um, um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten what my titles were. Opening the heart. And thirdly, it is, and you'll be surprised at this, Kissing the hand. Now what may surprise you if you don't know your Greek New Testament, <laughs> forgive me for swanking, no, but there we are, you have to do that when you do theology, um, but um, I'm not swanking, but the Greek word for worship in the New Testament is prokonia. You'll see it if the Matthew passage goes up. It's the word used there, in the wilderness. Nothing to do with churches, Nothing to do with hymns, nothing to do with anything else. He was in the wilderness with God, and it's pro cunio, which is kiss towards. And this is the word that's used many times in the New Testament. In Matthew twenty-eight seventeen, after the resurrection, they pro him. 
In Hebrews 1 6, let all God's angels proconio him. In John 4, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him, proconio, in spirit and in truth. What does it mean? When you become a diocesan bishop, you go and pay homage to the queen to promise not to belong to some other ruler of another country. You can see the background of the Reformation for that. So you go to Buckingham Palace, which my taxi driver rather enjoyed. Um, <laughs> going to see Queenie then, he said. There we are. Uh, and you go in and you make this vow to the Queen. You follow the words of the Home Secretary. And that was quite difficult in my case. Uh, but we, we got there. We said the necessary words. But then you kiss hands. Not like you see in the film with, of Tony Blair. You put your hand out. You be the Queen. I put my hand out and you put your hands around mine, like that. That's what kissing the hand is. Can you all see? Oh, the other way. Okay. <laughs> now that to me, that's what this word means about worship in the New Testament. And why do you kiss hands? Not because you love her or anything, <clears throat> but because you're going to serve her. It's a commitment to service. That's what the word means in the New Testament. So kissing the hand to God uh, is about what you're going to do with your life. And again, the second great burden of my life, I have many of them, in, in ministry is how many people, in fact, I was in a meeting the other day when a well-established vicar said to me, I'd never thought of that before. I, can I, I was absolutely bewildered. We love Jesus Christ. We declare, he is my saviour. Who's the centre of that picture? Me. He saved me. And you can go round, as I did when I was in the army, rejoicing that he saved me. I saved by the blood of Christ. I believe in him, which is true. But when you call him Lord, he is the centre. So, so many people never move from wanting the benefits of Christianity into the commitment of Christianity, which is serving him as Lord. When we call him Lord, it's not as someone doing something for us, it's the one we are to serve. So when we come to the Lord's Prayer, we don't begin with anything concerned with us, it's all concerned with him, his honour, his glory, his kingdom. That's the burden of prayer, that's the burden of our lives, to be able to serve him in the best possible way. So in Romans 12, it says, I, I beseech you because of the sacrifice of Christ to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. It's a different word, actually, but nonetheless worship. So the response is always that at the end of the communion service, we will commit ourselves to serving him. This is the response of all that it is. So we are to be doers of the word. I think sometimes we don't see it like that, that wherever we are, we are responsible as Christians. When someone says to me, it's really awful, Bishop, I'm the only Christian in my office, to which I reply, wonderful, because if you weren't there, there wouldn't be any. <laughs> so you're the one who's been sent there. That's the commitment of your life. I had a, a niece, a um, wonderful niece, and she contracted a form of leukemia, lymphobatic leukemia, before anybody had found any 
any before they have found quite a bit now, and not everything, but before they, they thought anybody could survive. Taken into King's College Hospital, <clears throat> huge amount of prayer. And she defied the odds, really. She came out of it and went on. She went on to qualify as a doctor. She was married. She had her first child. And then having her second child, she recontracted another form of lymphobacic leukemia. This time she was carrying the second child. What do you do? Can you do the transplant that's necessary? Dare you take the, the child early? What do you do? Well, this time it took hold. And I went to see her in um, the Royal Marsden Hospital just before she died, actually. We had a good time together. And I prayed for her. And then she prayed, Lord, if it's your will that I should die, I accept your will. That is worship. That's accepting the Lordship of Christ. So these are the three things that should be going on in this church every Sunday. On all our lives, the sense of reverence. You mean business with God here. When people come in, they say, this church means business with God. That your hearts are open to love him and to grow in love and knowledge and relationship and to kiss the hand afresh for the new week ahead. In one of the churches I went to in Bonn, an American church in Bonn, as you went out, there was a notice on the door on this side, servant's entrance. I think that's marvellous. You're going out to serve. Worship is not finished. It's just beginning for the whole week ahead. That our lives might make an impact for Christ. It's a wonderful privilege to be a Christian. It's wonderful to know God. And I long in my heart, as you must in yours, that we might, with all of our life, worship him in spirit and in truth. Adoring him, loving him, being in awe of him, standing out with his magnificence, coming in deeper relationship to know him more and more and more, and serving him as he directs every morning when I wake up. I worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then I say, I am your child, I am your servant. And I have a picture in my life, each, most days anyhow, of that little phrase in the pastoral epistles where he speaks about being at my commanding officer's disposal. Having been in the army, I see that as myself standing outside the tent, ready for the commanding officer or officer's orders. And when he gives the orders, I come to attention and I do it. And each morning I say, well, what do you want me to do? What is this day going to hold? Lord, here I am, outside the tent, ready for your service. I want to honour you, worship you in my life today. God help us to worship.